The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. So let's start off with building rapport. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, you know, it occurs to me that you have to play to your strengths in anything that you do. If right now Wimbledon is going on, and so I see these tennis players, if you're Roger Federer, you're about playing the points really quick, about putting the ball away, about advancing the net. And so similarly, as a negotiator, this isn't necessarily the tip for every single person. I do think there is definitely a universal truth in the value of building rapport. But for who I am and for people who may resemble me, I think that that is my go-to strength. It's my secret weapon. And so the basic concept is this. It's that in order to negotiate well, you need to build rapport with the other side. This means finding commonality, finding common ground, having things to talk about, building that relationship, getting to that point where they like you and you like them. So the matter that is being negotiated is almost secondary to the relationship. That's at least at a very high level what I'm trying to accomplish when I try to build rapport. I love your response for two reasons. Reason number one, I am a tennis junkie. And um, I I love the fact that you, uh, you brought in the tennis analogy, which was spot on. And number two, I really like the fact that you recognize that based on your personality type, you use rebuilding rapport as a strategic tool. But you acknowledge that there are some people who do not have that personality where building rapport comes easily to them. So for that yes. person, what advice would you have for them in this area? So I think anyone can still improve in this area. So even though Roger Federer is great at ending the points quickly, he still also has to be a consistent tennis player. So even though he's not a defensive player who's just getting the ball back all the time, like a Novak Djokovic, for you tennis nerds out there, he still has to be able to be strong in that part of the game. And same thing with Novak Djokovic. He can't just be getting the ball in defensively all the time. He has to be good at putting the thing away too. So even if that's not your negotiation personality, you can still learn from this. And I would still encourage you to do this. But I think knowing a little bit about yourself is important too. So if you tend to be more of the analytical type, maybe you're going to be the type to focus more on your negotiation arguments your legitimate criteria, coming up with brainstorms, creative options, and building rapport is going to be more of a secondary thing for you. But I think it's an area that everyone can use that will improve the outcome of their negotiations. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things is when you start to develop that level of self-awareness where you can see your personality type and the tendencies that you and the patterns of behavior that you bring to your negotiations, you can recognize what comes naturally and where you need to put some concentrated, focused effort. And if it's not something that you do well, it doesn't absolve you from the responsibility of actually building rapport. It just means that you need to be a lot more intentional about doing it. And so for people who are more analytical, maybe what you do is you have a systematic approach to rapport. You say, I'm going to ask these questions. And yes. I'm going to spend at least seven minutes before <laughs> I introduce yes. my arguments. 
I think you're dead on on that as well. It's one of those things that people simply underestimate, especially amateur negotiators, is they think that the whole point is the negotiation itself, is the material itself. Some of my best negotiations have been the ones where for 99% of the time that we're talking to each other, we're talking about the Lakers, we're talking about Wimbledon, we're talking about stuff way on the periphery of the matter. Then finally we end with, oh, shoot, we should probably deal with the little matter of this dispute or this contract or this deal or this whatever. By then, the wheels are so greased that getting the agreement is a piece of cake. And that's just the last 1% of the negotiation. So I think if that's the structure of your negotiation where there is that much rapport building at the front, you can bet that the negotiation is simply going to go better. And it happens a lot in business. And why do you think this is so powerful? I think the reason why the rapport building is so powerful is that it is a big part of why people do deals with the people that they do. If they like you, they're more likely to make concessions, to help you out, and to give you what you want. I'll get a little bit nerdy for a moment, as I like to do, and reference the two books by Robert Cialdini, Influence, and most recently, Persuasion. And so there are studies that back this up. It's not just an opinion or a, a philosophy, right? There, there are studies that back this up. So when people like you more, you are more persuasive. And so it's not just getting them to like you. That's the first thing. And that's great. There is another element that is even more powerful if you can layer these two. And so first get people to like you and then get them to say, Hamilton is also like me. Closeness is a persuasive tool that you can use during the rapport building process. You're absolutely right. The other thing I'll like to do is if someone has trouble giving into my side, I will empathize with the difficulty of their position. Let's <laughs> say a police officer is trying to give me a parking ticket or give me you know, some, some uh, driving ticket. I might say, man, it, it must suck to have to hand out tickets <laughs> all day and piss people off. I totally get it. That's not an easy position. And, you know, how many times a day do they hear that? They, they might hear it 10 times, but they might hear it zero times. So if you're the one person to say, I, I get it. it, it sucks. I don't envy your position. I totally understand what it must be like. They might just put that pad down and be like, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Because now you're showing that you are on their side. You're showing empathy. Absolutely. And that's the thing, too. I, I liken it to the uh, law of physics. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so if somebody is demonstrating resistance, either substantively and emotionally, and your immediate response is to negate what it is that they just said through argumentation, like, oh, you shouldn't feel this way, or no, you're wrong because X, Y, Z. Now they're almost obligated to counteract what you said with a, an approximate amount of force. So if they do it like you are suggesting, they see, oh, Hamilton's on my side. He understands me. Now they don't <laughs> feel the need to resist as strongly. Yes, like a matador in the bullfighting ring. Exactly. You, you don't, you don't, as the matador, put your head into the horns of the bull <laughs> and push back at the snout. What do you do? You turn to the side and let them use their force against them so that they keep moving. It's like bullfighting. Let the thing go through. Or negotiation jujitsu is a term of art a lot of people have used. So absolutely, you do not want to you know, strike the force head on. You want to try to redirect. Well, let's move on to staying strong. Tell us what you think about this. Okay. So it's not all pleasantries in a negotiation. 
I fully recognize. And you couldn't be in business and be in law for this long without realizing that you're going to have some negotiations which are hostile from the first second until the very last second. And so a lot of people shy away when they encounter the situation. In the fight or flight, they're going to want to flee. And so I think that the first thing that an experienced negotiator starts to develop is a certain resilience in a negotiation that's important. You need to be like a bobo doll so that even as the punches are coming, you continue to weather the storm and don't immediately start running for the hills. So a big part of this, there, there are a few little silly tactics that can help. One is it's very natural for people to nod in assent. So right now it's hard to say because we're doing a podcast and it's audio only. But if we were face to face, it's very common for one person to keep nodding as the other person keeps slamming them or advancing their side. So I advise my clients and students to keep their heads still and not to keep saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, okay, yeah, uh-huh. Because all that does is give the other side a green light to keep going. Instead, if you keep your head still and you don't keep saying, yes, uh-huh, okay, fine, it actually gives them this silence that makes people very unnerved and uncomfortable. And as a result, they'll feel more of a yellow light or even a red stoplight stop going in that direction. So I do, you know, everyone knows that Mike Tyson has that phrase that everyone has a plan until they receive the first punch or some paraphrase of that. And I think that's absolutely right. In a negotiation, people are terrified and they may go in with a certain plan, but as soon as the other side starts knocking down, they, they back off. So what I would recommend is stay strong throughout the negotiation, feel conviction in your position and weather the storm, it's coming. Absolutely. And I really love the advice that you gave there with not nodding your head because it's so subtle and so powerful. Because one of the things that people crave in these difficult conversations is validation, right? Yes. And when you are yes. nodding your head, you're validating what they're saying. And now yes. if you pull that away and you stop acknowledging and validating what they're saying, then what they're reading in their mind is like, wait, we had we established some great rapport at the beginning of the conversation. Yes. We're buddies. Now I'm not getting that validation. I want <laughs> that validation from Kwame again. And so then it starts to, they start negotiating against themselves a little bit. It pulls them yeah. in your direction without you even having to say a word. Will AI improve our lives or exterminate the species? What would it take to abolish poverty? Are you eating enough fermented foods? These are some of the questions we've tackled recently on The Next Big Idea. I'm Rufus Griscom, and every week I sit down with the world's leading thinkers for in-depth conversations that will help you live, work, and play smarter. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Absolutely. I, I think in a way, this is hopefully a nice balance where if people hear the first thing, Building Rapport, they're like, oh, okay, great. I'm just supposed to be buddy-buddy with the other side. I guess that's all I have learned here today. And it's, it's one way or the other. No. You can balance that just as effectively with this notion of being really strong in a negotiation, being comfortable with weathering the storm and not feeling so insecure in your own position that you have to throw your negotiation prep sheet out the window. I do feel like, you know, imagine what it's like if you're just a smart up trying to start up, trying to sell to a big enterprise brand, a household name, and you have this deal to place your products at that company's location. You might go into this negotiation trying to build, a, build that rapport. And then as soon as the company starts giving you a bit of that silent treatment, as you start saying all the reasons why you need to price it at this level or that level, you're, your heart's going to sink. You're going to lose a lot of confidence. And by the flip side, if the big company is thinking, oh, this little startup is going to agree to anything that I say, and then they start imposing all of these restrictions and you're all silent, they're also going to feel as a human being that, oh my gosh, the love has been a little bit lost. So it's a subtle thing. And it's not necessarily to turn the whole negotiation dark. You still want to have that rapport. But especially in those confrontational negotiations, this is a tactic that I would consider important. Absolutely. And, and I like what you said about the counterbalancing that this element has when you compare it to the building rapport. Because when I watch uh, Food Network and I see the, the judges critiquing the different foods, one of the things that they say is that it's, it's one note meaning that mm. it is not very com complex in its creativity, yeah. right? And I think great negotiators are beautifully complex. So if you yes. if you have if you're baking something and it's a dessert, of course it's going to be sweet, it's going to be nice in that regard. But a lot of times people are surprised at the fact that salt is an important part of the yes. process. You don't Ooh. really taste it at the beginning or as you're consuming it, but it's there and it balances. If you taste baking powder by itself, it is very unpleasant, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's an important part of the process. And so okay. when you negotiate with Hamilton, it's going to be a pleasant experience, but there is that counterbalancing that comes with staying strong that is necessary to have that successful negotiation. Totally. Okay. You and I have way too much to connect on because I am also <laughs> a big consumer of Food Network uh, cooking shows. And you're absolutely right. You know, they'll, they'll do the competition and then the judge will say, you know, this, this, the, the texture, everything here is mushy. Everything's soft. I need a little bit of crunch or, you know, there's too much meaty taste here. I need something to cut the, the grease. I need some acidity. We need some balance there. So, and I know it's 4th of July. So I was making some chili and one of the ingredients in the chili was to put in some espresso powder, some co mm. cocoa espresso powder. It's like, what? Why would we put that in there? And that is exactly what you say to counterbalance some of the other flavors. So being a good negotiator isn't being one note. It is having the full arsenal of techniques at your disposal so that you can be hard when you need to be hard. And then you can be soft when you need to be soft. People. Exactly. 
And so when it comes to being strong, I, I love the specificity of not nodding. Do you have any other specific tips for the listeners? Yeah. I mean, I also think that holding your cards to the best a little bit can be another useful technique. And it's funny because even as I say this, I feel a little bit of internal turmoil because <laughs> I taught at Harvard Law School with their principal negotiation framework and getting to yes is, 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 is what it's all about. I still negotiate with the principled framework when I do business deals or legal negotiations. And the reason is that most of the time you're talking about repeat business. So working off of principles, discovering interests, all that kind of stuff is awesome and is great. At the same time, when you are an SMB owner for 16 years, and you know this yourself from running American Negotiation Institute, you have to negotiate very tough all the time as well. And so in those instances, it really helps to do things like holding your cards closer to the chest. So one thing that is a typical sequence that happens in a negotiation, and ultimately I look at negotiation as like this cultural norm, and there are ways of doing the dance that are expected. And so one of the dance moves that is expected, I think, in a negotiation is what I call negotiation bartering, where it's like, all right. I'll trade you this deal point for that deal point. You trade me this deal point for that deal point. So in that situation, it helps where the other side doesn't really have the proper weighting on your deal points. And what people will do as hard bargainers sometimes is they'll pretend that something is important to them, even though it's not. I really appreciate you bringing up the the typical getting to yes style collaborative negotiation mm -hmm. approach, because I think one of the issues that comes with that is the belief that this approach is the way when it is a way, <laughs> one right. of the possible right. ways. It's a tool in your arsenal. And uh, I think Chris Voss did a great job of outlining the differences, because if you go against a hard bargainer and you are completely win-win collaborative, there's going to be a problem. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. I, I think that it kind of goes down to game theory also, uh, just like you point out, and the prisoner's dilemma. And it turns out that one of the most effective algorithms in a prisoner's dilemma type scenario where you have to collectively a medium amount to gain if you work together, where you will have more to gain if you win and the other side loses, if you play hard and the other one's soft. But if you both play hard, then you kind of end up at the bottom. When computers play against each other, the scenario that works the best, the algorithm that works the best, is the tit-for-tat strategy. So you start off nice, and hopefully the other side reciprocates. But if they don't, and they start going hard bargaining and take advantage of you and don't yield an inch when you're yielding miles, then you have to switch your strategy and then follow them and then go with the hard style. I love that you brought up game theory. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. And I think that is, that's a brilliant way of contextualizing the issue. And, and when it comes to being open and sharing information, that tit for tat strategy works very well. Because going back to what you said about the information asymmetry, if we give information, then they don't give information and we give more information. The information asymmetry is significant and it gives them more leverage relative to you in that negotiation. And we don't want to do that. And so the tit for tat strategy works well there. And another added benefit is that if you withhold a little bit of information, you can use it as a bargaining chip to trigger reciprocity to get them to share more information. So if you reach an impasse, you could share a little bit of information that you had back before and encourage them to reciprocate 
in order to get things going again. But if you give it all up front, now you have nothing else to give. And all of this, I think, is is really novel, frankly, for us to be addressing in negotiation podcast because that is one of the feedback that I would hear typically in a typical principal negotiation classes where the students are like, this sounds good, but I have this unnerving feeling that this isn't like real life. <laughs> and yes. <laughs> That it's like the book goes out the window as soon as there's a lawsuit or as soon as the deal that your entire career hangs on is in front of you. And that's why it is important to acknowledge that negotiation is very much a real world thing. It is frankly more of a street skill than any kind of an academic skill. I was actually playing tennis with an old buddy of mine, and he used to be an advertising executive at NBC. And I told him I was teaching this negotiation workshop. And he said, oh, psh, negotiation's easy. Whoever cares the least wins. And I was like, oh, man, I think, I think <laughs> you just taught the course in 10 seconds. That is like what a hard bargainer thinks is it's all about leverage. It's all about posturing. It's all about what do you care about? You know, not caring for the other side as much and feeling psychologically strong inside. And there's so much truth to that. You know, a lot of times it does come down to negotiation leverage, but some people are better at playing off their leverage than other people. I agree. And I think this segues really well into posturing. So tell us yeah. a bit more about that one. Yeah. I mean, I think that how, you know, playing a negotiation hand is like playing a poker hand. So just like I was saying that sometimes you don't want to make it clear what cards you hold it. Sometimes you want to suggest that you're holding pocket aces by the amount of money that you're putting down on the table. And so you can fake out the other side that way as well. So I think posturing, especially in law, is, is pretty important. You know, right now we're having a great conversation in a, let's say, a litigation negotiation. A lot of times it's not going to be that way. And if the other side starts going on an avalanche about all the ways that your client is wrong, you might want to stop that and you might want to be like, hold on, I disagree with that or show even like a frowny face or kind of cough or just be like, hold on and put your hand up. Little things that are part of trying to even that balance at the beginning because there is a psychological tug of war that transpires during a difficult negotiation and you're going to want to do the things that posture so that they feel that you're confident, that you feel strong in your position and that you're not going to let them run away with the deal all the way to the bank. I agree. And it's such an important part of it. And I, I love the fact that with this, with the three points that you provided, it started off really nice. And then, <laughs> <I know. laughs> and then, and then it just started to get darker and darker <laughs> as we went on. But, it, but it's true. It's real. It's an important part of the game. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.